I've said it many times and I'll say it again. I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for the military men and women of our country. In fact, none of us could. From the greatest generation to the modern day soldier battling terrorism, we owe a huge debt of thanks to all service members who have fought to preserve our American way of life. But veterans deserve so much more than just our gratitude. We owe them assurance that they will receive the benefits that they are entitled to. Today, we're taking the show on the road to the VA home in Oxford to visit with a few of the heroes who fought for our freedoms. And we'll have a conversation with Stacy Pickering, the head of the Mississippi Veterans Administration, whose mission is to ensure that veterans in the state have access to everything they are owed. How's the new job going? It's going great, Marshall. It has been a dream come true for the last year and a half to serve the veterans of Mississippi. And just really that transition from the auditor's office and. Uh, into this role has just been phenomenal and bring every aspect of my life together and uh, from service to the military side to being able to care for our veterans it really has been you know folks say that if you have a job you love you never really go to work you serve our country right now you're in the reserve well national yeah. guard national guard yeah and tell us what you do. You know, I, get, I have the privilege of serving uh, in Meridian, the 186th Air Operations Group. It's a command and control organization. We work primarily with First Air Force to provide uh, plans and leadership in times of crisis, whether it's a hurricane, uh, earthquakes, natural disasters, or if it was to protect the homeland. Uh, that's our mission set primarily, but because of that, I've had the privilege to serve on three numbered air forces, two MAGCOMs uh, around the globe, and it really is a privilege that I get to serve in the U.S. military and the U.S. Air Force. What rank are you now? You know, I'm a major. I You're a major, as, okay. as a chaplain. Very I was good. a married mm -hmm. family therapist uh, years ago, went to seminary uh, for that degree, and it allows me to serve as a chaplain, putting together uh, lives, help people deal with life. But you have just fallen into a job that is a dream job to you. It really is. You know, we run the state's four veterans homes. and Soon to, to be five. Yeah, we're getting ready to build a fifth one on the Gulf Coast. Uh, we have two cemeteries, and then we also provide all the claims service for our veterans uh, at the universities and colleges across Mississippi, train our county service officers, and just to be able to continue serving our men and women who've worn our nation's uniforms. A lot of people are like me, probably. They drive past the homes. They don't really think too much about it. But, you know, I've been in here now for the last couple hours, and, I mean, there are so many incredible stories underneath this roof. It's the home for heroes. Yeah. Uh, we have 150 beds in each one of our four existing homes. And every person there, no matter at what stage of care they're in, have a story to tell, whether it's our World War II heroes from that greatest generation, Korea, Vietnam, uh, guys, our Cold War heroes. You know, they're just as important. They've maintained that peace as we, the two superpowers, were jockeying around the globe. And then our global war on terror, we're starting to see those uh, older individuals who served uh, in multiple combat tours, not just in the global war on terror, but even some Vietnam vets who were still around when the global war on terror with Desert Storm started off uh, many years ago. They're actually starting to come into the homes now, and we have the privilege to care for them and hear their stories. I know one of the heroes we're going to be meeting today uh, has, in between his, him, his brother, his, his father, his whole family, they have 11 Purple Hearts. Well, you know, Mr. Strickland, you know, he was drafted and joined the war effort for World War II at age 16. You know, oh, wow. most of us are just getting our driver's license these days. He goes to war. And uh, he's from Texas, wound up in Mississippi, but uh, yeah, he was with uh, the legendary Timberwolves, the 104th Infantry Division. Went all the way through Europe to the end of the war, and he was actually at the Battle of Bastogne when it started. And his unit got pulled back, 
and he was actually wounded. I think his right leg uh, got a ton of shrapnel and a sneak attack as they were returning some German prisoners there toward the end. And by the time he convalesced in the hospitals in England, the war ended and he was able to return home to his family. And now he's in our home. Uh, you can oft oftentimes find him in the front lobby greeting folks as they come in the door, visiting with his friends, and most importantly, his wife. They sit next to each other, hold hands, and you know, that's a life goal of mine is to be like Mr. Strickland, age 94, and can't wait to see your wife every day. Mr. Strickland, I, I gotta tell you, it's a huge honor for me to get to meet you and get to talk to you today. And I was trying to think about where we would start, and I guess Water Valley, Mississippi might be a good spot, because that's where your folks got married, right? Yes, 1907. And your dad worked for the rail IC Railroad. Oh, okay, so that's how he y'all ended up in Memphis, right? Yes. Okay. He, he transferred to Memphis. And so you're 18. The IC there. Okay, so you're 18 years old. It wasn't a real surprise you were going to get drafted. No. What, what point were, were did you did you go in? Exactly 14, six, uh, 14 days before the start of the bulge, December second. Okay, the Battle of the Bulge, of course, was... 16. Yeah, it was, was basically we had landed at, at Normandy. We had got caught up in the hedgerows. We had shot across France. We had liberated Paris. Everybody thought the war was going to be over by the end of 44, and then Hitler struck back. That's true. What was it like that day when, when, when you came in there? Because I know it was kind of chaotic, wasn't it? It was chaotic. Uh, I was in the 104th Infantry Division, and... Uh, under command of Terry Allen, who had also had the 1st Division in North Africa and been yeah. relieved, came back and trained the 104th, which I was in. They were the Timberwolves, all right? Yes. Yeah, okay. But they were particularly trained, I might say especially trained, for night fighting. Yeah. And my first attack was at 12 o'clock at night, December 2nd, the little town of Endon. We crossed the Indy River, which is not much more than a stream, but there was a bridge there that had been damaged. Couldn't get armor across it, but you could get foot troops. <laughs> and that's what we were, of course, foot troops. At midnight, and we caught them red-handed. The Germans, in some cases, would actually remove their uniforms at night. Really? And we caught, we dropped two of them in the front yard in their underwear. <laughs> but anyway, we took the, took the house and my job was to take my squad. It was me and two others who was just as green as I. And I don't even remember the other three or their story. But before we crossed the little Indy River I mentioned, they shelled us. Yeah. And out of the six of us, they got three. Wow. And then they added one more man from, well, one had been in the second division. And uh, so I had four people, including me. And when once we took the first house, company commander sent me and my so-called squad out in front, two squad, two uh, foxholes, two men in each foxhole. And that's where I had my initiation. And when dawn came, or before dawn, excuse me, two different patrols came in on us. We happened to pick the spot that, fortunately for us, was not where the two patrols 
ended up coming in. Gets vivid, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, that was the first time I ever saw a German with a rifle in his hand. And I was frankly scared to death, of course. Yeah. So I didn't do a thing in the world but duck down in my hole and hope he didn't see me, which he didn't. But they went on. I, I didn't really know what the action was, but they went on into the house behind us, and there was a firefight there. Well, I wasn't a part of that. Uh, and then it happened again, much the same way. And in the, I think it was the second patrol that came in, uh, they were caught in their own mortar fire. And the medic that was with them was badly wounded. But he laid there and hollered and cried, wanted people to help him. After daylight, he was still there. So they, they had captured some people two or three, I don't know. And they brought one guy out as a guard and two Germans, prisoners, to pick up the wounded man. That was the thought, at least. And uh, they came out. Well, that was the first people that I'd seen in the daylight, so I was happy. I got up and went over to the location where the man was, and that was when they started the mortar fire. German mortifier, incidentally. <laughs> Doesn't sound right, but that's the way it happened. You eventually broke out of the bulge. I mean, the, obviously the 104th did. You started working your way across Germany. You made it across the, the Rhine River, which was huge. I mean, that was, what was that like when y'all came up on Germany when you were actually coming into the border? I mean, you had to feel like, okay, this isn't gonna last much longer. Frankly, we didn't feel that way. Oh, really? You no. just, yeah. The Germans were still fighting bitterly. Uh, they weren't as well equipped in one sense in that they didn't have, well, for example, they didn't have, obviously, enough artillery. Yeah. Uh, they used it sparingly, and we had plenty. So this was like spring of 45, somewhere around no. there? Oh, okay, that, that was, was winter, still, de- still winter. That yeah. was still December. Yeah. Uh, actually, that was at that time during the, the bulge itself. Yeah. But my division was never committed uh, in the bulge. We were about 25 miles away from it at the closest. Okay. So we were never actually in the bulge. Because I know, you know, some people have heard about the Battle of Bastogne and the 101st and being surrounded and, of course, the great response nuts when the German asked them to respond. It was pretty dire time at that point because it was the weather was bad. There could be no reinforcements via the air. There was no air cover. But then things kind of broke out and, and y'all started moving again earlier, like in January and February. Uh, February. Yeah. February 23rd yeah. was the spring breakout. Yeah. That's when we jumped off. Uh, by that time, we were across the river from Deering. Yeah. And uh, the division crossed at Deering. There was a river there. Yeah. And uh, my regiment was in reserve during that process. But we crossed and uh, went into the town beyond that, named Sinsdorf, mm-hmm. where we lost our regimental commander in a rather strange operation. Uh, there was a, I'll call it a 
meeting of the people in charge. They were in the basement of a house, and on two different occasions, they warned that we were about to be bombed. And then one of them was true. They dropped a bomb in our front yard of the house I was in. A railway gun, which is a huge shell, came in and went into the house and into the basement and killed the regimental commander, among others, yeah. I know your war ended when you got wounded right at the very, almost, almost two weeks before the end of the war. I was wounded by the explosion of an antipersonnel mine. Okay. That morning, which was April 23rd, the company commander told us, as far as you're concerned, war's over. But in the meantime, shortly thereafter, two Germans came over, and they were under a flag of truce, mm -hmm. and uh, they crossed the river, little, just not much more than a stream at that point. And they came over with the idea that one of them would stay with us, and then one of our people would go back with, uh, with the other German. And they had about 25 men who wanted to surrender. Okay, that sounded fine. So a very close friend of mine named George Saul, who was a, my idea of a great soldier. And he was the one who went back with the German. When he came back, he told the story and brought the 25 eventually. For some reason, they decided that we needed to go back and pick up the Germans who did not surrender. We crossed the river and uh, started in. And I noticed we're walking up this little old gravel road and I noticed what looked like an outpost or something off to the right. Well, it had no reason to be there in my estimation. We walked right up to the thing and it was so, maybe so high. And we caught three Germans sitting there smoking behind it. Didn't even have a weapon in their hand. I carried a Tommy gun and we got a drop on them, no problem. But there you got three prisoners with you at that point. So what do you do? You can't take them back. We had to take them with us and go on into the town after the Germans that were supposedly not surrendered. So we do. We go into the town and Saul was, Saul was my friend, George A. Saul. He was the friend and I was sort of following him. And the lieutenant, completely green, had never been in combat at all. But he was sent, believe it or not, in charge of the patrol. Well, he led from behind to start with. But things had gone so well and the three captured prisoners. So I guess he got brave by that time. And he walked up. First of all, it was an L-shaped house. We're coming around here, just around this corner is where Saul had seen the prisoners who did not surrender, not the prisoners, but the Germans. And we're in the middle of that. And the Lieutenant walked up just in front of Saul. And of course that was the exact wrong time. Saul had to say something. He said, Lieutenant, right around that corner is where I saw the crowds. 
Well, of course, they heard us. And they're all, Saul's distracted with that, for that happening. And at that point, a German came up to the corner with a burp gun and shot Saul. Hmm. It didn't kill him, didn't even knock him down instantly. Well, it didn't knock him down at all, but he did not die instantly. Well, I shot the Germans and we all ran into the house in the V and Saul was able to come in on his own. And when he came in, he couldn't talk. He stitched across the chest and he fell. And the lieutenant grabbed the radio. I won't tell you exactly what he said, <laughs> what he said, but it looked, <coughs> excuse me, we're pulling back. Slammed the phone down and ran. And the patrol started after him. Saul was still alive, and I liked to have a fit. And I said, no, we're not leaving Saul. And my platoon medic, Toro, and one other man picked Saul up and started out the back. We still have the three Germans with us, the three captured Germans that we got out of the outpost. And going in, Saul had been over there, as I said prior, and there were two anti-personnel mines, one on each side of the road, with trip wires. And in preparation for that, we brought uh, cutters and cut the wires and rolled them back on both sides. One of the two, one of the three Germans actually ran up and kicked the rolled up wire and set the thing off. It knocked him down and the man next to him down, German, and hit five of us when it exploded. I got shrapnel in my leg. That's how I was wounded. I wasn't shot. It was okay, it was just wounded. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got it in the right thigh. Uh, the Plum family, when did you meet them? Plum? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great story. Shaphoven was a small town, second town that I was in, in combat in. And uh, there was a German trench, zigzag, of course. Had a machine gun in each end of it and about 25 people in it. Not that we could see it at that time, but we learned later. And the battalion, what was left of us, went in single file, not very far from that, under cover of darkness, about midnight. And we had never had any occasion where civilians would be in the combat area. And one of the guys said, we've got some people here in this, in this cold cellar. And I walked over and there was an old man and an old woman. And the old lady was just pitiful. She was so terribly frightened, just shaking, thought we were going to kill her. And I saw what was happening and I held out my hand to her, tried to be looking kind. And it worked. She came out, settled down a little bit. And uh, I was with those people, maybe a total of 15 minutes. Sent them to the backside of the town, turned them on, get them out of the combat area. And then in 1963, and this is the beauty part of the story, I went back on a trip that I'd won, 
and I wanted to go, and I told mother and dad before I ever left, I said, I want to look those people up. I know it's impossible, but I'm going to try. I go into the town. Of course, I don't remember which town, which house it was or anything like that. But uh, everybody that I talked to through an interpreter, oh, no, no one was here. No civilians were here during the fighting. And I asked a number of people, and I think God himself intervened about at that point. Got back in the rented car and walked, not drove, to the next little town, which you might say is just over the hill. They're that close together. And he's out hoeing his garden. And I stopped to ask directions to a road or something. I really don't remember precisely. And ended up telling him the story. And he said, oh, yes. That's Herr Plumenis Frau. He knew the people, mm-hmm. knew where they lived, got in his car and took us back to, oh. to Shopoven. By that time, the old lady had really lost her mind. Yeah. She was out of it. Yeah. But the man was reasonably. Yeah. When it finally dawned on him that I was the guy that got him out. Yeah. Then he lit up like oh. electric light. Oh, there was very. Poor, let's say, yeah. had nothing, but he wanted to do something for me. So he goes up in the attic and gets a cigar, which I don't care for. Right. And he brought it down and gave it to me. And I said, oh, no. I, I, and then it dawned on you, you dummy. And I took the cigar. Thank you for sitting down with us and taking the time. And, and thank you for your service to our country. Yes, sir. Thank you. When you walked into this job, was there anything that surprised you about it? Did you have a good grip on what you needed to to be done or what you needed to do? You know, Marshall, this job, I think the biggest surprise was the vastness of it. You know, we don't just, everybody knows about our veterans' homes in Mississippi. Uh, We're proud of it. They are phenomenal facilities. But yet, we pick up where the vet leaves service. It may be after their one four-year, two-year tour, as just like the 155th Guard guys came back uh, this past year, you know, all of a sudden we wound up with 3,000, almost 50% of them are brand new veterans. Yeah. And helping them use their GI Bill benefits to retrain, get educated, go to college, we actually certify those pro- programs mm-hmm. for the federal government. We are the state authorizing authority to make sure that they're getting a good education and that money's being well spent. We also help them find jobs and the job placement in Mississippi. And then those that have disability or need for claims, we actually help them file their claims for compensation and benefits, represent them in their appeals process. And then we pick up with our veterans' homes, our two cemeteries we run in Mississippi on the back end for the end of life issues. So really it's a full spectrum of care that we care for our veterans, as well as our events like Reads Across America, Vietnam Commemoration Day, Veterans Day and Memorial Day. You know, these are the big days that we get to lead the effort in the state to recognize and thank those who served our country. Boyd Moore. Now, some people are in here calm sport, but he pretty much saw just about a little bit of everything that went on during the Pacific War and during World War II. You know, he's one of those rare individuals who did see it all the way, almost from the beginning to the end. Uh, he, He tells one of those vivid memories of his experience in the Pacific was flying over Pearl Harbor and seeing the hulks of these ships that had been bombed by the Japanese and then really just island hopping from New Caledonia to New Guinea, all the way up to Japan. And he was part of the occupation army after the end of the war that helped 
clean up and help reinstate government and civility in Japan. He really saw war and combat from the very beginning to the end, till peace. Mr. Moore, it is an honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Um, you were born, I guess, 1924 in Hudsonville, Mississippi, which I guess is a suburb of Holly Springs, right? Uh, no, it was about seven miles. Okay, well, so it's out in the country a little bit. Yes. So here you, here you are in small town Mississippi. You probably never thought in a million years that you would end up on the other side of the world no. in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's right. I, and I remember reading about you flying into Pearl Harbor and seeing all the sunken warships from, the, from, from December 7th. And this was a couple of years later, and it was still, they were still in the water and they were still sunk. Yes. The ships were in, in the same place as it was when the Japs bombed them. Yeah. All the sailors, soldiers, it was on the ship, entombed, and left there. And it's very sad. You, um, you drove a truck. You drove a truck for the 154th Port Company. That was your job, was, was a truck driver. So you got to see an awful lot, because uh, you, you hopped around from New Caledonia to New Guinea. You were in the Philippines. Oh, yeah, I got to see quite a bit. Uh, some fun, some not so fun. Were you were you tied in with MacArthur, General MacArthur's um, part of the army? When as the war was over, I was in Manila. Yeah. And that's that's where the Japs captured first, and then. Uh, yeah, Cor Corregidor and and Bataan, and the, then the Death March. Yeah, and then. MacArthur came back. Uh, I have a picture of him at home now, uh, wading through the water, coming back to, to Manila. And you came in right behind him, right? Yeah. The Battle of Manila, and a lot of people don't know this, but the Battle of Manila was one of the toughest battles of the whole war. Yeah, it's, when we got into Manila, the, the town was completely gone. It wasn't partially gone. It was completely gone. Yeah. Had barbed wire entanglement all around. And so we just had a tent that held uh, about six or eight. I don't remember how many. That's. That's where my brother was. Uh, and you actually got to you got to meet up with him during yeah. during that time. We were at Clark Air Force Base, and the lieutenant, real nice man, and I, and we were coming on this detail to Manila, and got there in the jeep. I threw my duffel bag in the tent. I said, I wanted to go see my brother. I hadn't seen him in two years. Oh, wow. And so Lieutenant said, yeah, go and you can take off whatever you need to do. And then come on back in. 
But it wasn't long after that that you were put on a transport and you were taken to Japan. Yeah. That's when you probably knew the war was actually over. Oh, yeah. I yeah. knew it was over then. The little town we went to was Matsuhama. Okay. That's not a, not, done, on. not a big place. But you were a part of the occupation forces. What was what was Japan like at that point? Because it had been bombed repeatedly. The people were starving. I mean, it was it was a mess, wasn't it? When oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but then after we got there, the Japs were very humble. They were bound, squatting down to you, any way to honor you then. Yeah. After what we had been through. Yeah, after them. four years of basically brutal warfare. Uh huh. And then they were they were very and your your job and I and I love this but your job was to destroy Japanese weapons. Yeah, that had to be fun, actually. Uh, well, it's like the rifles. Uh, to take a bulldozer and go through the right over them and. Of course, that didn't destroy them, but it would bend the barrels and be useless, useless for a while. How long were you in Japan after the war? I celebrated Christmas there oh, wow. 1945. And uh, right after Christmas, we got notice that we were going home. What was it like when you, when you got home? It was probably good to see your family, wasn't it? It was very good, very good. Mm. Well, Mr. Moore, I appreciate you taking the time and sitting down with me today and talking to you. It's, it's an honor to get to meet you. Okay, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes. We're sitting in one of the homes here in Oxford. Absolutely gorgeous facility, about 20 years old. Yep. But you just told me that you've gotten the appropriations to be able to do some remodeling. Yeah, the legislature and our board of directors, uh, we have the Mississippi Vet Veterans Affairs Board. They're all appointed by the governor and the seven member boards, our governing authority, just appropriated 1.6 million this year that we're renovating the living space for the guys uh, and ladies, as well as our nurses station so we can better take care of them. And then just last week, they've also authorized us to spend $2 million going into next year to renovate all these facilities where they live. This is their home and their dining room, their television room, their sports bar, their library, and here, the chapel, that we can make it more applicable to them, not just with technology, but also right. to upgrades to better serve them to give them a higher quality of life. Someone asked me recently, did I serve? No, I did not have the honor of serving. However, I tell people that if, if People like yourself did not do what you do. I couldn't do what I do. I think it's something as a nation that we really truly need to take the service of our veterans seriously. You know, I think our nation learned that lesson after Vietnam and those men and women were welcomed back uh, so poorly. Yes. We failed, there's no other way to say it. And we've learned that lesson. And now when you see these families coming back and I've been able to witness, you know, to stand there with the families as the spouses get off the plane or get off the bus and you watch the young kids run and the wives and husbands run to their loved ones and give them a hug and welcome them home because they haven't seen them in a year except via FaceTime and Skype and Zoom and those kind of new technologies, which is great, but they've missed that embrace and that touch. And we get to see that recon, you know, reconnection happen. We get to do that for our Vietnam vets. And one thing we get to do is, as a state, we host the Vietnam Commemoration Day at the Capitol. 
and uh, we lay a wreath there for those who didn't come back and those who have since died, but also for those who did serve that are with us. We put a lapel pin on them, shake their hands, say thank you for your service. Well, like we're going to hear from Mr. Gibbs, his story is incredibly powerful and, and the service and the sacrifice that they gave to our country and for, for years they were ignored. Exactly. You know, I think really we never understood the fact that they were standing in that Cold War era in a hot war situation, standing up for democracy and our Republican form of government against communism and socialism. And that's really what it was in the, in the South Pacific, in uh, Southeast Asia. And they really stood in the gap and helped stymie the spread of socialism and really protected our way of life, our freedoms, our liberties. And we should be internally grateful for those men who did that. Paul Gibbs, I mean, what an incredible story he has to tell. He served in Vietnam. Well, you know, Mr. Gibbs, again, a legendary character here at our home. Uh, he's always involved in the Domino's games and, and in the dining room, but also uh, those do field trips with us. Executive vice president with Car, uh, CarQuest Auto Parts before he retired. But his Vietnam story, which he's very humble about, doesn't tell you. You know, he was his radio operator in his group. Uh, in the Marine Corps, winds up dying, receiving posthumously the Medal of Honor. And he was there providing the rear action, trying to save his guys, get them off this hilltop. And he, all, he gets left for dead himself. And when they finally bring him down the mountain on a stretcher, uh, the story goes that all of his men stand up and salute him as he comes by. And that's the kind of heroes we have in our home. Mr. Gibbs, still to this day this year, uh, in a wheelchair, at a military veterans event, and has our staff stand up, help him stand erect, to represent all the men and women who served in Vietnam. Ms. Gibbs, it's an honor to get to talk to you. Uh, you've got an incredible story. I can't wait to hear all of it. Um, you were raised in Fulton, Mississippi. I guess that's a good place to start, yeah. Well, Fulton and Tupelo, I went to. Okay. I moved to Tupelo when I was in the seventh grade. What, what made you decide to join the Marines? Well, I don't know, it's just, it was something I've always kind of wanted to do, and it didn't have any effect on Gomer Powell. So that wasn't uh, a great recruiting tool then, no, huh? No, no. When the war got going pretty strong and people had been drafted, yeah, I went down and joined the Marine Corps. And you decided to go into OCS to become an officer, I, too? I see when I went in the Marine Corps, I went in at, through OCS. Okay. That's at Quantico. It's at, right, uh, up in Virginia, yeah. 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 So you were training, you, you came out, uh, minted a fresh second lieutenant, then Vietnam. So next thing you know, you're on an airplane and then you get off and you're in country. That's right. Wow. Were you prepared for what you, what you saw when I don't, you went into I don't think anybody is ever completely prepared. Yeah. But uh, my mission that I felt, and I had some good people training me, was my first concern was my people, my men underneath me. You definitely proved that your men came first. Well, they proved it to me too. They, they stayed with me when I was very immobile. Yeah. Where? What part of country were you in? I was in uh, Quaison Mountains, and we were about, oh, I'd say, 20 clicks from uh, Alligator Lake, right over on the Laotian border. Yeah. And we we had there was a company out there, but I had. Uh, 12-man patrol out patrolling in front of the company, right. watching for ambush. I would say, well, obviously for, for ambush, you were just basically in the jungle and that was your mission, was to just kind of... It was kind of, kind of clear the way if we got into too much trouble, yeah. then call back for reserve help. 
I had interviewed Carl Melanis, and I was doing some reading up on Vietnam, and I read, read across um, Private First Class, Class Ralph Diaz and his Medal of Honor that he received posthumously. Right. Little did I know, then when I'm reading about your story, you, he was your radio man. He was my radio man, and he actually died in my arms. Wow. Uh, we got hit, and... Well, recount the day, because, I mean, I know that was a, it was a really, um, you guys were way over, you were outmanned, outgunned, and... Well, we were outmanned, outgunned, and, but not outdisciplined. Yeah. Our, our mission then was to seek and destroy anything that might be in front of that uh, rifle company. Yeah. And we were, we got hit, then Hamlet, my point man went down first, and he he was dead, and I was the second man, and Ralph was the third, yeah. and it was two machine gun positions, and we couldn't get up and and run. I mean, if we had, right, we would have been at history, but uh, we kind of held a position, and then we moved a little bit, and that's when I moved to the left and Ralph moved to the right. Unfortunately, he was in very close range in alignment of the North Vietnamese, mm -hmm. and he was hit hard. And I got back to him, and the thing I want to thank God for is my Marines. They didn't, they didn't turn and go back. We were outnumbered probably, I'd say, eight to ten to one. Wow. And I was talking on the radio to the battalion commander. And he asked me where I wanted to fire. And I said, any place you put it will be good because they're all over us. Yeah. And we lasted there through the night, basically, before they could get a helicopter in to pick us up. And they picked me up about, I'd say, 4.35 o'clock in the morning. You were also up against a couple of snipers. Um, I think about three, four snipers. And yeah. Also reinforced. I'd say a rifle come in yeah. from North Vietnamese. So it was a hail of gunfire, and he was taking repeated hits as he, he kept I going. I think he got, they told me, seven bullets in him. Wow. So hit seven times. But he survived long enough to take out the machine guns with grenades. He survived long enough to take the main machine gun Yeah. that was hitting us, and then also he got a pretty big dent in the other machine gun before he died. At the last, to give you an idea, at the last minutes of his life, he had, when, when they recouped his body, mm -hmm. he had two hand grenades left and less than one round of ammunition. Wow. He was, he deserved the Medal of Honor, and I'm glad that. And your, uh, of course, your story helped him receive it because you, oh, I, you were there. You I, saw what happened. I saw the whole thing. You saw what happened, and he, and he passed away in your arms. You also, um, were hit really hard, right? I guess right in here in my leg, both top of my legs were bone in half, and the bone in this leg was sticking out. Front bone, you know, the bone, yeah. the big bone, femur bone, was, front was out and the back was out. I was just, good Lord, kept me alive. That's all I can say. And a lot of people didn't think you were still alive, and yeah, they finally were able to to get you and to get you back to where you could be evacuated. And right. There was a, a story that I read that when 
you were being evacuated. Everybody, of course, was exhausted from battle and they were lying around trying to recover themselves. But when they saw you coming through, they stood up and they saluted you as you were being uh, carried through. That's just my men. That was the people I was with. Like I say, if they all hadn't been dedicated and hadn't, hadn't put their life on the line, who knows what would have happened. We were outnumbered, outgunned. So what would have happened? The love and respect you had for them, obviously they felt the same way about you. I, I pray so. Thank you so much for sitting down with us and it's, it's an honor to get to meet you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Yeah. I know that has to be a lot of fun for you to get to, to go around to the different uh, facilities and being able to get to meet the different heroes. It, it really is, it, you know, and it doesn't matter if they're here in the home or they're on the college campuses that we get to help care for. Veterans, they have, there's this sense of identity and who they are. They've been there, done that. And you know they're kind of past themselves when it comes to trying to impress. They'll tell you who they are, what they think. And that's one of the joys of this job is because you get to meet people where they are. Uh, and you're seeing them come out of their service, just like the 155th did this year. 3,000 came home. Over half of them never had been deployed before. Now they come back as veterans, and we get to help take care of them, uh, processing their claims, making sure they're in the VA medical center system, all that they're going to need throughout their life. We make sure the universities and colleges are accredited. We are the state authorizing authority so they can use their GI Bill benefits. We, you know, we even have some that will do on-the-job training and they can access their GI Bill benefits there without having to go to college if that's what they, the career path they choose. Last week I was sitting at the HR office of Ingalls making sure that we're getting more and more of our vets plugged in, not just on the Gulf Coast but throughout the state. And we look forward to partnering and growing that part of our mission. What does it take to qualify to get into one of these homes? Any veteran's entitled to live in our homes. Uh, you know, it takes a couple of uh, things, but the biggest issue is they have to be a veteran, have a medically, medically required condition for skilled nursing care approved by the VA, and they're in our home. And that's the reason we maintain 95, 100% occupancy rate. But for the veteran, it's $50 a day. You'll never find 24 hour a day, seven days a week skilled nursing care for that price. The VA picks up the rest. Oh wow. And for a Mississippi veteran who's disabled 70% or 70% disabled or more, mm -hmm. it's free. Well, you talk about services and I know there's probably a lot of veterans right now that are watching you and I talking to each other wondering, uh, what, who do I need contact to be able to find out what services are available to me? The first place you go is our website, msva.ms.gov. And that has all the links, resources. It has the forms you need to fill out to get admitted to one of our homes. Everything's there, or they can contact our office. We have veteran service officers all over the state who will help you file a claim with the federal VA. We actually have staff embedded at that office who will actually handle your appeals for you. And the beautiful thing, it won't cost you a dime. This is a service our state provides to the veterans of our state to help make sure they receive the compensation and benefits they're entitled to. Tell us a little bit about Lee Bruton. You know, Lee Bruton was a great guy. Uh, he just retired from service here as an employee. He was our veteran service officer to help veterans get in the home. Uh, Lee was a veteran and of, of Vietnam and a young officer and received two silver stars, Purple Heart, and just recently the VA Medical Center in Jackson inducted him into their wall of honor. Uh, so he'll be recognized and respected for his, his, what he did. He actually, one, one of his uh, Purple Hearts received two was because of what he did when a mortar attack hit their base and he went in and pulled people out and brought them to safety. But the other, he actually captured a Vietnamese, North Vietnam a soldier one night, had him lead him back to his, his uh, community, his base, and with hand grenades in his own handguns, comes in and rescues some uh, American soldiers who had been taken prisoner uh, himself. And so, uh, great guy, great story of valor, great story of sacrifice. 
and comes home and works here on behalf of veterans in Mississippi, quietly taking care of them and their families and a, a life of continued service. Leah, it's an honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you today. I understand I had to take you away from work for you to sit down and talk to us. Yeah, that's not very hard to do, you know. You don't have to twist my arm. Oh yeah, just sit, sit, to sit down that. and talk with us. By the way, um, medical center at the VA down, they just got on wall, an honor down there. I was nominated uh, for the wall of honor yeah. and uh, the, uh, the, it was, you know, in recognition, you know, of my service while I was in uh, uh, the military. And uh, it was quite an honor, you know. Right. But uh, uh, the biggest honor that uh, I've had up to this point was the opportunity that I've been given by the Mississippi VA to work with these veterans here, yeah. to help them with their claims, to help them get in. Uh, that, that, that's, the, that's the honor that I'm really proud of. You were originally from North Carolina. You went to Troy State University in Alabama. Well, I went to Western Carolina went University to, okay. in the Mountain as well. Okay. Uh, what got you into the military? I, I flunked out of school. Okay. So you got drafted, I basically, got drafted. at that point, and you you went into the Army. Um, you ended up becoming ended up becoming an officer, though. Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, you went through OCS. I went through OCS, yeah. yeah. We went through a battery of tests. I was inducted at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what OCS was. Ah. But they told us, you know, we had the opportunity to become an officer. And well, I thought that would get me out of basic training. So right away I signed up and I found out later it wasn't that at all. No, really, you're <laughs> like, uh-oh. do want to touch a little bit on the Silver Stars, though, because the first one, um, you basically exposed yourself to deadly fire while you were leading your men. I mean, there is a, a golden thread that runs through your medals and your, and your record of just basically almost like fearlessness, but I think you were doing it to protect your men, weren't you? It wasn't... Well, that was it, yeah. you know. When you, when you signed on, you become, you know, the platoon leader, you yeah. know, it's your responsibility. And you, you do what you have to do. And you, you follow your training. Yeah. And, the second, the second one, you captured an enemy soldier. Yeah, we were out on a night roving patrol, and uh, we captured uh, one of their sentries. He had, yeah. he had dozed off, fortunately, and yeah. uh, he was uh, leading us back to where the you know the the other uh, VC were, and uh, we just ran into a little hostile fire. Yeah and took care of it. And you said you wanted to share some stories with us about some of the, the lighter times in Vietnam. Yeah, we, uh, we were out on one of our night roving patrols and uh, we were in this village and uh, you know we were moving up forward and I stepped around this hooch and, and there, there stood a Vietnamese face to face. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I was kind of shocked and he, he was as well, obviously more shocked than me. And uh, he, he ran his hand down his pant, and I thought he was going for a pistol or yeah. something. So I could come up with the butt of my M16, missed him. And he took off around the corner, and one of the other guys in the platoon tackled him. And uh, we started in interrogating him, and we found out that he was the uh, village pothead. Oh, he no. was just out <laughs> roaming around, and what he had done he had urinated on himself when he 
when he put his hand down there and we were face to face, so it just, it just scared him to death, so. <laughs> <laughs> he literally beat himself. Yeah, he did. He just, and uh, we, uh, another one, right before I left Nam, we were up near the uh, Cambodian border. We were uh, yeah. in the 25th AO, and uh, we were at a place of, Anyone that's ever uh, been with the 25th Infantry Division is familiar with Nui Ba Den. Mm -hmm. It was a huge mountain right there in the middle of the uh, AO, and we were above there, up there, uh, digging in for the evening. And uh, uh, my platoon sergeant came over and said, "You know, said, uh, you know, the old man would like to see you." So uh, I go over there and see. His name was Tommy G. Smith. Real interesting guy. So I go there and he asked me, what I, was I interested in going volunteer in death, you know, possibly making a career of the military? And I said, I, I, I don't know. I said, you know, I'd really have to give it some thought. And he said, well, think about it and get back with me. And as I was going back, I'd been digging a foxhole all day. The ground's <laughs> hard as everything. As I'm going back to the uh, foxhole, mortars start coming in. And so I'm digging to my foxhole, and here's a little old snake about that long crawls in the foxhole. And I said, holy crap. I said, I'm staying out here. I know what's in that foxhole. And so the next morning I told him, no, nah, I've fought this over. I think I'm going to go home, you know. <laughs> the snake was a sign. Yeah. Did you hear you were choosing a snake over mortar? It's like, I'll just take mortar rounds. That's, That's fine. That's it. It was, that. I, yeah, because uh, I knew you know, for sure what would happen if I crawled in there, so. Right. Yeah. How long were you in country? I was in there uh, 11 and a half months. 11 and a half months, yeah. so yeah, you did the full. Uh, yeah. And do you ever keep up with any of your men? Uh, I keep up uh, with uh, with one, He's a, my platoon, he was my platoon sergeant, uh, yeah. Joe Clock. He lives in uh, Economy, Indiana. This guy pulled three tours over there. Three tours? Yeah, wow. and was wounded twice. Yeah. And I don't know how many uh, bronze stars a guy. In fact, we were just, uh, was just talking with him, uh, I guess it was Friday night. Uh, we still stay oh, in wow. touch. And and he, he reminded me of an, uh, of an, uh, an event uh, that I had uh, forgotten about. Uh, we, were <laughs> we were going through this village and, uh, well, Prior to that, we'd went out on a day patrol and we went through the village and we noticed uh, a lot of kids mm -hmm. and uh, young females, but there were no males there, no men whatsoever. So I had an interpreter. I was in what they called a Crip platoon, a combined reconnaissance intelligence platoon. We had about eight Americans and eight Vietnamese, and the Vietnamese there were Chu Hoys. They mm -hmm. were former VC. Yeah. And I had an interpreter, and uh, we were going through the village, and my interpreter stopped and started talking to these two small kids. And uh, I, I didn't understand what he was talking about, and he, he started laughing. And all of a sudden, this mother came over and got our kids and took them away. I said, what was that all about? He said, I, I asked one of the kids uh, where his father was. He said, oh, he said his father was dead. And the smaller kid said, no, no, he just visited us last night. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, Out of the mouth of babes, yeah. yeah. And so wow. we waited a couple of weeks and we went back in the village. Yeah. And we made our way to, you know, right outside that hooch where uh, 
uh, you know, the encounter with the small kids had taken place. Just to see if dad had come back. Well, they were there. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were okay. outside uh, eating rice and well, you know, I, I don't know who went east or who went west the quickest, you know, but right. we, we scattered. But me and platoon sergeant, we saw this one guy shouted, just start off, just said, hey, let's go check it out. And then we walked out in that area and uh, there was an old guy inside. He was a coffin maker and he was a you know, woodworker in there working. Yeah. And we started to walk in and we noticed that in one of the coffins that there, there was a, a body, you know, what yeah. we thought. And so we left, you know, and we kept looking, we kept back and I, and uh, Joe was a name. I said, Joe, something strange about that. I said, why would an old guy be up at this hour of the night, you know, doing woodwork with the lights on? So when we went back, the lights were off and there was no one in that coffin. So the, body. The, the guy hid in it. Oh, you know? the body came back. Yeah. The dead guy came yeah. back to life. Yeah, and we, we wow. Yeah, that was, it was interesting, you know. You received a soldier's medal. There was um, a burning bunker. Tell us a little bit about that story. We had, a, there was an explosion yeah. in, the, in our platoon's bunker. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, uh, I went in and. Uh, Risked your own life. Well, I, yeah. I, I, got, uh, I got two other guys out and, uh, and, and they, they, they didn't make it, so, yeah. and then uh, there was six others, I believe, or four others in there that uh, couldn't get out. You know, you were just determined to, to help your, your friends. Anyone would have done it, you know. Yeah. You, you form a close bond with those guys and you, uh, you never forget them. Right. You think about them, you know, daily. Right, I've always heard that, that you're, not only you're <laughs> fighting for the country, obviously, but you're really fighting for the person next to you in the foxhole. Yeah. Unless that person happens to be a snake and then you're not gonna be in that's a fight. That's it, yeah, exactly. that's it. You're not Then that snake close. can die. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for, you. for sitting down and visiting with us. It's an honor Thank to get you. to meet <laughs> you. Gonna ask you, a really tough question because this is like asking you who's your favorite child. What has been the best story that you've heard in the last year and a half that you've been? Oh, wow, the best story. Uh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, just last week, we helped a veteran who was uh, depressed, self-medicating, and was suicidal and got him the help and got him stabilized. You know, yeah. you cannot put a measure on that kind of stuff. Right. We have the story of last year, about a year ago, Petty Officer Darrell Wade, uh, he was on the USS Oklahoma that Sunday morning, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and the USS Oklahoma rolls over and they all get trapped and drowned inside, and they pulled all these burned bodies out and just buried them in a mass grave, but because of DNA, they've been able to go back and start exhuming and identifying these sailors and call their family and say, we found your loved one that had been missing all wow. these years. Yeah. And do you want us to reinter them here in Hawaii or would you want to bring them home? Well, the Wade family said, we want to bring them home, and we buried them in our North Mississippi Cemetery in Kill Michael. Uh, we saved a prominent place for him right on the front row, and Petty Officer Railway came home to Mississippi. It seems to be about respect, too, and that's one thing. You were telling me about a story. Uh, for instance, you had a resident that passed away and how they are treated as they, it's like their last trip out with respect. What we do now is once the coroner and the family have had their time and have done their job, we cover the, the stretcher with the American flag, announce it over the PA system to join us in our central hallway, and it will be lined up shoulder to shoulder. And when that gurney turns the corner, we play taps. And these old men who are on walkers and wheelchairs will stand up or sit up as straight as they can, 
give a proper salute and say goodbye and thank you one last time. They are treated as the heroes when they leave this home the way they were treated when they came in. And it's a privilege that we get to do that to show that respect. And uh, it's called, we call it the dignified transfer. This is, you're leaving our home for the very last time and this is the proper way for us to say goodbye. Well, Stacy, I want to say thank you and thank you for your service too for the country. Well, it's a privilege, a pri privilege to be a part of the brotherhood that have done that. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for letting us into, into our home. It is, and the home for the veterans. It's home for Mississippi's heroes. Yes.